Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 99. Guys, I can't believe it. It's uh, it's it's wild to be here at 99 episodes and just over three years since I launched the podcast. The very first episode actually went live January 18th, 2018. Do you guys even remember 2018? Is that is that even right? <laughs> it is right. I I I just paused the recording and went to check. I had been dreaming for a long time of having my own podcast. I had co-hosted a show for uh, an organization that I worked with with a friend of mine, and that was fun. And I had wanted to start the show for a long time. And it's it's really grown into something far bigger than I anticipated. It has uh, exceeded my dreams and my goals. I started the show because I was trying to land a book deal. And the publisher that I was working with said, your book is interesting, but no one knows who you are. So come back to us when you've made a name for yourself. And so I was like, well, I'll start a podcast, right? And I remember about six months in, I, I, I gave up. I was too tired. It was too much work. And fame and glory are really bad motivators, at least for people like me. And I, I hit pause and I connected with some friends back in 2018 when we could, you know, do things like that. And a bunch of them said to me, Jonathan, you're a good writer, but you're a really good interviewer. And that's a rarer skill. So why don't you focus on the podcast, uh, move it up to weekly, because I was doing it bi-weekly at first, and uh, and really lean into that. And so I did, and, and find fresh motivation was one of the things I had to do. And I realized that I just love meeting people. I love making new friends. And so... You know, if you go back and listen, you'll hear a change towards the end of 2019 and sorry, towards the end of 2018 and into 2019. And I just felt like as I got more vulnerable and honest with my guests and just worked to build connection and not try to create something, we actually had better and better conversations that, you know, ironically made it better for all of you listening. And so I'm I'm just so thankful for all of you who've been listening. Uh, my listenership has been growing steadily, even just the last couple of months where early on in COVID, listenership kind of dropped off because I think, you know, no one was commuting to work. But in the last little while, uh, my listenership's been growing significantly. And so that's that's just encouraging and humbling. So I thought what I would do for 99 is... Let's look back over the last three years and over the last 99 episodes, and I want to highlight a few of my favorites. I want to talk about a couple of things that were really big for me, and then I want to uh, actually play some highlights from a couple of episodes that were really special to me. Now, if you've been listening recently, you'll know that there's a very exciting episode coming up uh, episode 100 and 101. I promised last week that I would tell you today who my guests are. And so I will do that right now. My guests next week that you will get to listen to for two hours are William Paul Young, author of The Shack, a guest on this show before. Dr. Allison Cook. You may follow her on Instagram if you don't trust me, you need to. Allison, if you don't know her, is a counselor, speaker, writer. She's remarkable. Dr. Jerome D. Libba. Many of you listened to my interview with Jerome all about the psychology of Jesus. 
He is a uh, neurologist, a functional neurologist, and a neurotheologian, and, and does amazing work in many different spheres, including the Enneagram. And uh, fourth, but by no means least, Amita Mansare Richardson. She's probably going to be a new voice to most of you. Amita does not have a large public platform, but she has master's degrees in both theology and public health. She is a researcher uh, focused on community-based health solutions for children and youth. She leads multiple nonprofits. She was born in Nigeria uh, to a Christian Muslim household, grew up in Ghana and Togo before moving to Toronto. She's a mother of five boys and is incredible, an incredible woman. And so next week, split over the following two weeks, you will get to hear us dig into issues of trauma, theological trauma, Christian church trauma, personal healing, neurology, how God meets us in our brain and our mind, how uh, colonialism and empire have built systems that have kept, obviously, the slave and the oppressed and the one with the boot on their neck uh, oppressed and in trauma, but also dehumanized the rest of us in the process. And so we covered a lot of fascinating ground, and I cannot wait for you to dig into it over the next few weeks. It's going to be amazing. Well, I'm going to share with you today. We've got a few things to share today. I looked back over all the last hundred or so episodes and wanted to mention a bunch that were really special for me. So we're going to roll through a few different things here for episode 99. And first up is I'm going to replay for you my very first episode of the podcast. Now, it's only about 20 minutes, so there's plenty of room for other interesting things too. But this episode is near and dear to me, and when I went back and listened to it today, I just thought, man, this is still so good. And this encapsulates and forms a foundation for so much else that we discussed over the last three years. And if you've read my devotional, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You, you're going to hear... Uh, that, that I was chewing over this stuff already a while ago and trying to bring language to this idea that God is good and that God is everywhere. And that if we can get those two things deep into our hearts and minds, then everything else changes. And so uh, we're going to start way back with a replay of episode number one, God is Everywhere. And then when that's done, I'm going to share a few other thoughts before we dig into another highlight. So let's, let's do it. God is either good or he isn't. And God, I think, is either everywhere or he isn't. And those are big, big questions. And I would say big statements. If God is truly good, then we have nothing to fear. If God is everywhere, then we can be involved in God life in everything that we do. And if those two things are both true at the same time, it has ramifications for just about every aspect of our life. Now, if I say God is everywhere, some people are going to assume that I'm saying that everything is a God and that you can make anything your God and God is just the universe. I don't mean that at all. I mean Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I believe that God created this world. 
but I believe that we don't just interact with him on a Sunday morning at church or at Mass or uh, just through the reading of the Bible or other so-called religious activities. I think God is everywhere, and we can invite God into every part of our lives. And I think the idea of us inviting God into every part of our lives is nice, but I think it actually belies a deeper truth that God is inviting us into every part of his life. And every part of his life is involved in everything on this planet. You see, God created this planet in order to put you and I on it, in order that you and I could have relationship with God, in order that we would procreate, have children, fill the planet full of human beings made in God's image who love God, so that eventually we would be joined together with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, so that the Son would have a partner, a mate. It's a, it's a bit like when Adam is in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning uh, of our creation story, and God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will create a, a woman to be with him. There's something, there's something similar taking place with the creation of humanity, that we are the uh, object, which you know is not a lovely word, but we are the object of Christ's affection. We are the person of Christ's affection. Not just individually, though he loves each one of us individually, but corporately, communally, as the entire race of humans. Jesus loves us. His head over heels in love with us. It doesn't matter if you love him back. Now, there are things that matter if you don't love him back. But his love for you and his love for me is not contingent upon us loving him back or us even thinking that he exists or believing that he's real. You know, this famous piece of scripture, John 3.16, that, you know, we quote all day and is, uh, you know, kind of the cornerstone of certainly the evangelical Christian world. It says, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say for God so judged the world or so for, or for God decided the world was worthy or for God so loved the Christians. It specifically says God, God loves the whole world. And unfortunately, many of the people who recite that verse the most seem to have forgotten that aspect. And the verse afterwards is even perhaps more telling when it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So we have to understand that God loves the entire creation. He loves the world. He loves the planet. He loves the animals. And most importantly, he loves the people on it. And he's concerned about the welfare of the people on it because he loves the people on it. And he sent his son in order to represent him most effectively. We have this whole thousands of years of history before Jesus Christ comes with uh, people trying to figure God out. We have a Bible full of stories about people trying to figure God out and describe to somebody else what God is like. And these stories get progressively more interesting and more interesting, in my opinion, until finally Jesus himself enters the scene, God wrapped in human flesh, and says, now I will tell you what God is like. You see it all throughout Christ's language. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And he replaces and supersedes every other image we have of God. And so the image we have of God in Jesus is a man involved in life. He's a man, he's a very non-religious man. 
in the sense that he is a part of everything and his spirituality is integrated with all the rest of his life. He has friends, he eats food, he wears clothing, he has a job, he grows up, he goes on tour, he gets baptized, uh, you know, he hangs out with people. Sometimes he hangs out with some ill-reputable people. He, he is the object of gossip in the end, and he teaches and preaches, and he walks from town to town, makes friends, makes enemies, and is kind of an all-round human being. It's kind of shocking, and yet it's kind of not shocking uh, when this is, this is the God who created us. God created us in his own image and then came down to show us what a fully lived human being looks like. A fully lived human being is involved in all of the things of life. And he is concerned for the poor. And he's concerned for the widow. And he's concerned for the elderly. And he's concerned for all of those who are marginalized and all of those who are being rejected and crushed by powerful people. So this is a person who's compassionate, who's engaged, who loves powerfully and actively and lives a free life doing the things he likes to do, meeting with the people he likes to meet with, as well as representing the heart of God to everybody. And this is the invitation for you and I to live in the exact same way, to live just like Christ lives, specifically a fully alive human being. I mean, maybe it sounds crazy for me to say this, but God is the archetype human being. It's not complicated when it says that we're made in his image. God is the archetype human being. He is creative. And what does he create? A whole universe full of stars and full of planets and moons and incredible beauty. And then he puts uh, flora and fauna on this planet to be tasted, to be explored. He creates people. He creates man and woman. He creates pleasure. The entire setup is good because he's a good God. And the entire setup is meant to be explored and experienced because God is in everything. And if God is good and if God is in everything, then that should challenge our religious ideas. It should challenge our need to please God. It should challenge our need to convince God to come close. It should challenge many of the things we do in churches. It should challenge many of the things that we teach our children. I mean, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was a missionary kid, and I, I loved God as a young child. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was four years old, and I've never looked back. I've never gone through a rebellious stage. I've never turned my back on God. For a number of years, I turned my back on the institutional church, but that didn't feel like rebellion. That felt like God leading me out into the wilderness where he cared for me and for my wife and fed us and miraculously provided for us, just like he does for anybody who's in the wilderness. But we don't live in the wilderness. We don't stay there. We don't remain there. He leads us back into a land that we build in. And so my wife and I today are children's pastors at a church in Kitchener, Ontario, and we're helping to build and we're teaching these young kids. But I find myself constantly being challenged by the things that I grew up thinking about and believing about God and the things that I'm having to teach these kids. I don't think anyone told me specifically that you can only interact with God on a Sunday morning. But nobody made it clear to me as a young child that I could relate to God outside of church. And because church was the predominant time that we spoke about God and the predominant time we did quote-unquote spiritual things, the, the culture simply reinforces, the culture and the structure and the uh, presentation simply reinforces this idea that Sunday morning is the only place that we can interrelate with God. Maybe God, uh, maybe we can only 
obtain wisdom and benefit from preaching if we've sung worship songs beforehand to prime the pump, as it were. Now, I love singing worship songs, and worshiping very often does prime the pump and allows for us to receive more from God. But the point I'm making is that the lack of anybody saying anything to the contrary contributed to my belief, which I then continued into my teenage years and and young adult years, that God was somehow distant and would only come close certain times, and that if we pursued God steadfastly enough, then maybe he would come closer. And maybe there would be certain times and events, like a conference or a special time, that God would come very close. And it seems that, you know, maybe sometimes during revivals or other major events, God would come really close for a whole season of time. And, and that's all partly true, but it's not the entire truth. It's not the whole truth. And if you hold on to that as your entire truth, it becomes alienating. And you will become a person, unfortunately, who alienates. Growing up in the charismatic movement, it took a long time for me to realize that people could still experience the Holy Spirit and not be showing it the same way I was used to showing it. I'm used to the outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit looking like speaking in tongues, holy laughter, people falling on the floor, people being healed of of physical ailments. And these are wonderful things, and I don't despise them in the least. But the Holy Spirit is involved in everything. If you have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was involved in that process. If you have shown sacrificial love to anybody in any circumstance, if you're a single mom and you're selflessly loving your children and you want nothing to do with God, that self-sacrificial love you're showing your child is an act of the Holy Spirit interacting with you. Because you are created in God's image. You can't escape this stuff. You can pretend that God doesn't exist and you can turn the lights out in the room. But if, you, if you're at a party and you turn the lights out in the room, all your friends are still in the room. You can't see them maybe, but they're still there. And I think that is a big part of the human experience. That God is right here with us, but we very often are oblivious. We very often have our eyes closed to his nearness And a large part of what closes our eyes is sin. God doesn't withdraw from us when we sin. And maybe some people will take extreme offense to this statement. God doesn't withdraw from us when we sin. When we sin, we close our own eyes. All through scripture, God has no problem looking on humanity. It's humanity who can't look on God. When God passes by Moses, it's not God who says, Oh gosh, it's Moses, I better hide my face. It's Moses who says, good God, it's God, I'll be consumed if I look on him. And so this is the same thing that we deal with all the time. Sin has real effects in our life. Sin brings death, not because God curses us or because God wounds us, but because that's simply what sin does. Sin is darkness and death. And when we live for our own selves, we live in darkness and death, and we will be blinded consistently and continually blinded to the very close presence of God, who is right here. Jesus Christ said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's literally able, you can reach out and touch it. You don't even need to reach. It's right here. Because God is in everything. And God is good. Like I said, it has ramifications for just about everything. Let's take a look at uh, Colossians. It's my favorite, probably my favorite chapter of scripture in the entire Bible. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, about the supremacy of the Son of God. 
The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It doesn't say most things. <laughs> Paul's very clear. He doesn't say the Christian things or the redeemed things or specifically just the humans. God is interested in all the things, and he has reconciled to himself all the things. Say with me, all the things. God has reconciled all the things. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. See, God was never an enemy. Of, God was never, we were never, it's hard to understand, but we were never God's enemies. God has never been opposed to us. God has never been at war with us. God has never lifted a hand against us. Read it backwards. Our evil behavior made us enemies in our minds, and that alienated us from God. So the alienation is one-sided. God's still sitting in the room beside us, but we've turned out the lights and we're keeping them off when we continue to live in sin, our evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So listen, you and I, have to be involved in the life of Jesus Christ. If we, if we want to keep our eyes open, God is good and God is in everything. And God is not some kind of manipulating, controlling freak who is trying to convince us all to behave some way and meet some standard. The fact is, the fullness of our life is found when we are in union with the one who created our life and created the very planet and created the whole concept of life itself. We rob ourselves when we settle for anything less. and We live according to our own selfish desires. We are the ones who lose. And God simply weeps when we make those choices. We pursue Christ. We have faith in Christ. We believe in Christ. We lean into Christ because in Christ is found the fullness of the presence of God. In Christ, the reconciliation is made real. And the, the, whole, the whole thing, Paul describes it as the mystery hidden by God since before the foundations of the earth. The mystery is that God himself would live inside of us. That we can try and try as we like to live righteous, sinless lives. And why would we do that? Just to keep our eyes open so that we can see God. We don't have to try and please God with perfect righteous behavior. God is already pleased. He already loves us. But to keep our eyes open and to keep our eyes fixed on God and to keep engaging with him, we have to live sinlessly, which we've all tried to do and we've all failed, every one of us. And so that's where 
God has pre-prepared this mystery. It was his whole plan from the very beginning that Jesus Christ would come and have his life through the Holy Spirit inside you and I. And all of the righteousness that we need in order to keep our eyes open and to be in the light would be provided by God on our behalf inside of us. It's truly turns just about everything upside down from every other religion and so many religious discussions around Christianity. God doesn't need you to do anything. God is everywhere. God is good. God is surrounding you at all times. God is inviting you to live with your eyes open and aware of his presence, you won't be able to open your eyes and be aware of his presence as long as you are living selfishly and living for yourself. Not because God set it up that way, but because that is the nature of sin. That is the nature of choosing against our design. But since we are so unable to choose consistently in favor of our design, God has pre-provided a way for us to choose, and that is to have faith in Jesus Christ who comes and chooses righteousness on our behalf from within us. And God in us reaches out to God in heaven and our eyes are opened and we can begin to experience God in every waking moment all around us, every day, the goodness of God made available to us while we watch TV, while we play sports, while we raise our children, while we worship God, while we read the Bible, while we dance, while we sing, while we get tattoos, while we get our hair done, while we make love, while we drink beer, while we lay on the beach, and while we pursue him intentionally. God is everywhere, and God is good, and he is only ever inviting us to discover more and more of his everywhereness and his goodness. Shortly after that episode aired, I began doing interviews, and you know most of the show is an interview show. Well, when I got up to episode 30 and 31, I hosted an interview with Luke Gifford. Now, Luke and I had connected over Instagram, and I was really enjoying the work he was doing around masculine formation and emotional wholeness and kind of self-worth for men. I had already begun journeying with some of this stuff. I was beginning to get in touch with my emotions in a, in a new whole way. But if you've read You Are Enough, then you'll, you'll probably remember that I said, I interviewed Luke Gifford, and he said to me, Jonathan, you could spend a whole year loving yourself. That would be a good usage of your time. And what do you think would even happen? And that possibly was one of the most transformative, impactful moments of my life to date, because everything since then has changed since I did that work and begun that work. So I thought I have to include some, some of my interview with Luke. And so I've got a few snippets here from a few different areas in our interview. If you want to listen to it all, go back to episode 30 and 31. It's called Transformative Masculinity with Luke Gifford. If you've ever heard of Krista Black Gifford, she's a really quite remarkable speaker and author, um, previously worship leader and singer-songwriter. Uh, Luke is her husband. What I wanted to do was introduce men to what's already happening inside their bodies mm -hmm. 
And let's see if we can't figure out how to optimize our inner world, meaning the physiology that we've adapted, uh, the, uh, the knowledge that we've learned from that physiology, and uh, the melding of that physiology with the emotional spiritual world. And that being, that being the center point, the heart being the center point of all that, uh, and see if these men can't show up in the world the way that they see themselves as showing up if they're given uh, a bit of day-to-day guidance on how to do that. Absolutely. So, uh, so what my – and the way that I communicate that is most of us don't have – most men don't have a very clear structured framework for their inner emotional and spiritual world. I have a piece called the most loved self and the most loved self is something I believe exists inside of everyone. Right. And it is the person, the the aspect in you, the essence in you, the core of who you are that has perceived every experience you've ever been through as a loving experience, Mm. which is going to rock, which is going to rock some heads. Right. Every, every, it has been through every experience you've ever been through. It's been through all the pain you have ever been through. This part of you has been through, uh, all of the injustice that you've experienced, all of the trauma you've experienced. And yet it is, it is willing and capable of seeing all those as something that left you more loved than when that experience began. And, uh, and building a relationship and a connection with that aspect of yourself uh, it is a really powerful practice. Uh, then we move to what I call predefining. And this is a term that I've keyed uh, where it's important for us to master our emotions. And I don't want to get too complicated, but I, there's a way that I see us as beings, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Uh, our uh, Most of us call what is we, – we believe that we are living in a spiritual spiritual life. But really what we're doing is uh, injecting our minds, our intellect, with spiritual ideas. But we're not actually living and embodying and practicing those spiritual things. Right. There's a dualistic kind of – That's right. Here and back so, uh, and the key to that, to me, the thing that's most left out and most devalued is our emotional aspect. And the emotional aspect is the key to actually moving from a mentalized obesity into a spiritual spiritual life. Mm. And so if we can learn to value our emotions, appropriate our emotions, uh, make aware the, the, the emotions that we have deemed shadow and negative and actually make them useful, uh, which requires our learning to feel. Yeah. And so part of the process that we do is that these men learn to feel. Just before we got on the mic this morning, we had a little dialogue over Instagram. You had uh, you had posted an image that said, "Humility is a byproduct of accepting your greatness." Mm-hmm. You know, and then just like said, "Discuss," like, <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't care. And so I, I I had commented. I said, "When I see my greatness as designed by God, then it's not about me as such. My greatness isn't because of me, but my greatness is waiting for me to grasp, to cherish, to unleash it." I have an and agenda. I have a strong agenda in this, so keep. Oh, continue. of course you do. Of course you do. Of course you do. Yeah, no one says discuss without an agenda. <laughs> and then you replied, "What if it actually is about you? What if God designed it to specifically be about you? And what if that's the point, and your self-esteem depended upon it?" Mm-hmm. I think, in many ways, that's that's what I want to believe. 
or that's what I, you know, when I said it's not about me as such, I think there's a part of me that's like, yeah, God is greater than me. And a part of me wants to remain acknowledging that. But the one who's greater than me created me and made me look like him. <laughs> you know, essence, uh, I talk a lot about essence, the core expression of who you are. And my definition of that is God's goodness through you, for you, and then I have a full stop there. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand more of it, but I full stop there because my agenda, even in this, my agenda is that we don't, we aren't quick. We are, we need to slow down and become very slow in, in handing off what has been given to us. Let, let, we, we don't even get a chance to let our cups fill up. So people, if we don't do that, people don't get the overflow. They get what belongs to us. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And so uh, it's one of those things where we let's hold it in until it is bursting. Like what if we, what if we were okay with the discomfort and of tension? And what if you were to say for a year, you were to completely focus on how good you were without sharing any of that goodness with anybody, just as a practice to see how full you could become and to see if you could reach a point where you literally could not help yourself but explode. Mm-hmm. How, much, uh, how much deeper into the root system of your being would a sense of your own goodness become? Right? And here's, here's why. I talk to so many people who live with the sense that they are wrong at their core. Yeah, right, right. That they are, uh, that they are, yeah, that they, they are sinful in their nature. Now, I have, I don't, I believe a little differently than a lot of people. Uh, but if I'm made in God's image right at the beginning, that's my nature. Right? And I have a shadow. I have a part of me that's developed because life took a crap on me. My work now is to uncover that shadow because it's not evil. Those things aren't evil. Keeping them unseen and unloved can become evil. And so anyway, that's, that's my agenda. My agenda is, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy made it all about you. He made it. Let's full stop, full stop. You are great. That greatness is for you to fall in love with yourself. Full stop. Don't give it away. Giving away too soon has caused a lot caused a lot of false humility. That's good. What Luke, you know, invited me to do to fo- spend a year focused on my own goodness, I had no concept for that. I, I maybe I was scratching the surface of some similar ideas, and if you listen to our interview, you know, there's a lot where we're on a similar page. But it, but that was very much me as the learner and and him as the, as the master. But that tipped off a whole process of transformation in my life that continues to this day. So I'm, I'm so thankful to Luke for, for his time and for what he's doing. Uh, you need to go and, and listen to our interview and then go and follow him and get on board with, with what he's doing. He runs all kinds of courses and he's an amazing guy. So very shortly after I did the interview with Luke, I had William Paul Young on the show. Uh, he, you know, I've known Paul f- uh, by reputation for a long time, 
and had, re had read The Shack and his other works and loved them. They'd been life-giving for me. And a mutual friend of, of each of ours got us connected. And Paul came on the show and we talked about love, justice, and I asked him all kinds of questions about universalism and whether he was a universalist and what that meant. And his kindness to me was so immense and so impactful. We became friends and have kept in touch, and that's why he's back on the show next week. But man, that episode 35 was remarkable, and I would include some of it here, but uh, since he's on the show next week, I'm not going to do that here. But I wanted to make special mention of that. Another one I want to make special mention of is my interview with Brad Jersak. We talked about uh, a more Christ-like God, which is the title of one of his books. Brad's a theologian that I've been following for years and have been really impacted by. And the chance to talk with Brad and get to dig into this idea that that God has always been like Jesus, that, that God has always been this good God, that we couldn't always see it, but that uh, there's so much more goodness to be uncovered in God. And, and a lot of excavation needs to be done in our evangelical framework, and there's a lot that we need to cast off. Uh, so if that sounds interesting to you, A More Christ-Like God with Brad Jurisak, episode 39. Now, the next one we're going to uh, listen to is with Ondi Kolber, because Ondi, uh, again, one of these people who I, I knew a little bit online, but we became fast friends, and she ended up writing the foreword for my book. And Ondi, again, this is one of those ones where things she told me, I was just been learning about, just been scratching the surface, but it's like it set me on a whole new course, a whole new path. And I am indebted and thankful and blessed to uh, be able to share this with you. So it's been, again, one of my most popular episodes, Supporting Yourself Through Trauma. It was episode 48 of the podcast, uh, and we'll listen to a little bit of it here. You talk about a lot about being trauma-informed. Um, mm -hmm. Can you unpack that for, like, super simple? Because... From my perspective, I'm like, shouldn't every counselor be like, shouldn't that be a default? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and what does that then differ from those who would say that who wouldn't focus on being trauma informed? Yeah. Well, let me start with saying this. So I um, so I'm a licensed therapist in Castle Rock, Colorado, and I've been practicing for about 12 years. And so in answer to that question specifically, the trauma-informed piece, I would say I would love for every counselor and probably even further, like sometimes I've been joking around lately, but not really joking that, but the future is trauma informed. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just really passionate about the idea that, um, understanding our bodies and understanding the way that um, we are affected by pain and what happens when we are experiencing pain is so significant that essentially everyone should know about it, whether or not they would identify themselves as a survivor of trauma. And, and so basically what that means at its core is just understanding that our body is a system. And that system, like when we are experiencing something that our body perceives to be terrifying or a threat, um, part of our brain, the top part of our brain, the, the prefrontal cortex goes offline. And that is um, so that we can respond to threat really quickly. And that prefrontal cortex, though, is a super important part of our brain. It integrates sort of all of who we are. It's sort of what 
you know, from like a faith perspective, kind of makes us the most human. It's like our, the, I would say almost like this imprint of the Imago Dei. Mm. Like this is what's particular to humans. And it allows us to do things like think about thinking and have empathy and um, plan ahead and have perspective. And I mean, it just, it's not the most, I mean, it's not the most important part of us because we need all of who we are, but it has a really important role. And so all that to say, understanding that trauma, things that feel like they could become trauma, it it causes us not to be our true self. And so when we bring that lens in to church or our communities or our schools or our therapy office, we come to recognize that, um, you know, if our body is reacting to what it's perceiving to be threat from a subconscious place, this is not us choosing to not be ourselves. It's our body responding to something that's happening. And so it really shifts our perspective because, because it changes it from being like, I'm choosing to be difficult or I'm choosing to be anxious or I'm choosing to be disconnected. Oftentimes, we have to address the underlying um, issues that are coming up that are causing our body to feel unsafe. So that feels already like a pretty uh, a pretty accurate, you're not saying this, but I'm hearing you say, this is a lot of the time what we get wrong as Christians and what the church often mm. gets wrong. Well, just cast that demon out. Well, just try harder. Well, just if you had more faith, you wouldn't be dealing with these issues. You know, I can look around my church and I can see the people who are dealing with depression, anxiety, major uh, psychological disorder. And I can see the ones who know that there are tools and I can see Mm -hmm. the ones who think they just have to try harder. Mm. Yeah. I can see the, the people as well who also just believe, well, if those people just tried harder, they Mm. would be okay. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if we're talking for the trauma lens, you're undercutting all of that and saying, look, your whole system of of who you are as a person Mm -hmm. is not permitting you. Mm. This is not Mm -hmm. your choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think what's so beautiful is that actually recognizing that and doing the work that we need to feel safe in our bodies and to connect to ourselves gives us more choice, right? Yes. So we, it changes from um, reactions to being responsive. We shift, you know, so when my brain, like if I'm So let me just give you an example. Like, let's say I grew up in a home where there's lots of, um, you know, emotional wounding and there's lots of um, feelings like it's not okay to express our emotions and I feel a lot of shame. And then I grow up and I connect with people who also do that because that feels familiar to me. And I'm constantly feeling a little bit out of control. And And then I see that and I want to like, I get angry at myself and I'm like, oh, I'm such a bad Christian and I'm not disciplined enough and I'm all these things. But if I changed my posture and began to get curious and say, you know, I wonder what story is telling me that I need to have a like connection with people who keep treating me this way. And I wonder why I don't have compassion for the pain and the anxiety that's coming up. And as I do that, what actually happens is that prefrontal cortex that we talked about earlier, if we can come from a more gentle, integrated perspective, we're more ourselves. Mm. And so then I have choices. So, I mean, I think there's a sense in which 
you know, understanding our bodies, understanding that our, our, our development, our, um, our communities, our relationships, they impact like our actual neuro wiring in our bodies. And when, when we can then have compassion and curiosity with that, we can sort of work with them rather than it just happening to us. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so you, you wrote in a recent post, what if you had the support you needed to listen to your true self? Mm. And I like fell off my chair. And you said, one of the reasons I come from a trauma-informed perspective is that it frees us up to attune to our true selves. We have the deep privilege of participating with God in our wholeness. What on earth? (laughs) Would it be helpful for me to unpack that a little bit? Go for it. I love it, but go for Uh, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think so much of you, you might have already, you know, picked that up when when I'm talking about the trauma-informed perspective, but so much of that is about safety. And so for me as a therapist especially. And I mean, not that this doesn't come, I mean, this comes into other parts of my life too, but particularly when I'm working, um, you know, with folks in therapy, but also when I'm writing and even as I'm writing the book that I have coming out, I'm really keeping this idea of safety in my mind. And to understand this, it's like, we have to recognize there's this concept in psychology called the window of tolerance. And the window of tolerance is basically the level of intensity um, we can handle before basically our prefrontal cortex goes offline. And so we get into those like amygdala driven lizard hissing matches. Yeah. It's like either we'll go to fight or flight or we'll go to freeze. So that's kind of what it looks like. Like that's what the, that's what we would be doing um, when that's happening. And so essentially when we've had more trauma, like when we've had, let's call it little t trauma, which is anything that overwhelms our nervous system's ability to cope. So anything. So that's going to look anything, anything that's like just too much, anything that basically we don't feel like we can uh, process, move through, like it just feels too big. And, you know, you, you might know it's, it becomes trauma if when you think about it, this, my husband laughs when I use this word, but it's the best word. It feels yucky is what I say. Like, it's like you think about a memory and you're like, oh, there's like, it's yucky, you know, and it, and it may bring up a visceral sensation and it might bring up, uh, you know, like the smells or it could bring up like, it's like a little bit of a videotape. And again, there's a really wide spectrum with trauma, but Essentially, I use a really broad definition of trauma because I'm really coming from it from a nervous system perspective, meaning if our nervous system couldn't process it, it becomes trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't really matter. I mean, and I I say this like with caveats, but it doesn't really matter what what happened if the way you perceived it was disturbing and you couldn't process it. So there are things that we would definitely say are big T trauma yeah. and and those are any type like any type of sexual violence, any type of um a threat to your life or observing someone um where they're threatened like their life is threatened. Um those automatically 
are um, diagnosed, if, if you're having symptoms from those, it's diagnosed as, as basically PTSD. But little T trauma, and this is where most people get can get confused, is that when they hear little T trauma, they're like, well, then it doesn't matter. Right. And I use the I use the um, analogy. It's kind of like like a big T trauma is like you got a big cut from like a knife and you need to go to the emergency room like right now. Like you need immediate treatment right now. And that's valid. But little T trauma is like I got a paper cut and and I then looked at the paper cut and I was like, man, uh, I had a paper cut and that doesn't matter. And then I got maybe 30 more paper cuts. And I was like, well, I'm not going to care for that paper cut because that's silly. And I am weak for getting paper cuts. And then the paper cuts continue to accumulate. And all of a sudden, your hand is so infected because you haven't cared for it. And you've never recognized that it's also a type of wounding that it is as significant in its compound state as big as the, as the knife wound. In fact, it it can be as essentially like it can just cause the same symptoms um, because the compound nature of it. I mean, I can think of workplace times in my career where I've been consistently and basically systematically overloaded with work and have, have had a, a portfolio of responsibility too, too large for me to handle, you know, and realizing that that was actually traumatic over the course of time. The constant feeling that I could never keep up, that I was never delivering on goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've I've been able to look back at some years of my career and realize, actually, I've ended up feeling unsafe. Actually, I've ended up not trusting people or myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so yeah, that fits into that category. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so I guess, you know, going all the way back, because I love to go on tangents, um, to that original, what the post that you read of mine, it's like, when we have a lens that tells us we have to stay in our window of tolerance in order to listen, kind of how you described how you've been really working to listen to what's actually going on inside. We can't do that when we're in fight, flight, or freeze. Because it's not because our, we're living out of the lower part of our brain, whose really only main goal is survival, and so that means that we, it's not our true self. Therefore, we can't really pull from the wisdom of our full experience of our of our humanity, and even really connect with with God or the Holy Spirit, because we, you know we're wired to want to survive. And so I guess, you know, go that post that the idea behind that is I want to help people experience safety when they're actually truly safe, right? Like if we're not safe, let's, <laughs> let's make it safe first, you know, like if you're going to get hit by a car, let's move out of the way of the car first. Right. Um, but, but that then really opens us up to say, so what do I need? What is going on? What is keeping me stuck? What is God saying to me? How can I receive the love that people are offering me? How can I give myself the love that I'm worthy of receiving? And so all of these things happen 
when we're in our window of tolerance, when we're integrated, because they're one and the same. Our window of tolerance means our brain is integrated. Mm. And so, you know, I think unfortunately we live in a time where I think culturally there's been sort of this like, you shouldn't want to be safe. Like, who are you to think um, that you deserve safety? Mm. And I think we we get this confused with comfort. And there, you know, I think there's a time and a place to feel comfortable, but safety's even um, more foundational than comfort. Yeah. Safety, I really believe, like God desires for us to feel safe in our bodies and safe in our connections and safe with him so that we can then sort of have the freedom to use that as our like safe base. So then we can go out and be courageous because we know we have a safe place to come back to. We can go do scary things. Yes. If no place is safe, like what kind of life is that? But if you still hate yourself Mm. or if you still think God hates you and you're still trying to punish yourself, then you won't feed yourself. Mm. So I mean, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's another major hurdle. Absolutely. And that's where sometimes we really need other people with us in the process. Um, you know, I say, like, we can't give ourselves what we haven't sort of received. Mm. So like, because, you know, there's that whole added, I don't, there's like a whole thing around that. But essentially, like, like, let's say we grew up in a home where it was modeled to us that our needs didn't matter. Right. Like, it, maybe it wasn't even like, it wouldn't, maybe it, it classically no one would have said you experienced trauma. But, but what you experienced was, you are not allowed to pay attention to yourself because that's selfish and that's bad. The internal narrative that you're carrying is that it's selfish and bad to listen to your body, to listen to your emotions, to take care of yourself. And so that's where it can be really helpful to get connected with like a therapist who, or like a community that feels really safe or even one or two other people that you can be, they can begin to model, um, like you, you are worthy of, of being heard. Like, and your needs do matter. And and what happens is, is we actually need that framework. Like we literally need our, there's something in our brain called mirror neurons. And, and what happens is, is that we record in ourselves what we're observing. So if we are not observing it, we can't record it. And so there's a sense in which when someone shows us compassion and even maybe And sometimes that can happen even with God. Like when we really can tangibly experience God, there's a sense in which that can sometimes be a template for us to give that to ourselves too. And so there's not really a perfect formula because all of us have such different stories. We have a lot of different nuances. Our critics have different words, you know, that they might share, like might throw at us. But if we can begin to eat, like if you can't be compassionate yet, the thing I would encourage folks to do is to start with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like to mindfully notice, like, isn't that interesting that I'm okay with, you know, giving my kids lunch, but when it's time for me to have lunch, I I sort of don't make that a priority, or I I think I'm almost weak for needing lunch. Or isn't that interesting? That every time I think about, you know, going for a walk at night because I know it feels really good, I, I start to call myself selfish. 
And if we can just even begin with curiosity, that can sometimes um, give us a lot more information that can even begin to cultivate some compassion. The language that Ondi gave, both for being trauma-informed and understanding really the brain and body connection with trauma, but more so the idea of giving ourselves what we need, that was all brand new to me. And that, that hit me so deeply. And God used that over the next couple of years so, so powerfully in my life. Uh, it's, it, it beggars belief. It's hard for me to sit here and think back and imagine what my life would have been like you know, without those things, learning to move towards myself and self-compassion, giving myself what I need, trying softer rather than just trying harder. Man, that, that's changed my life. You know, that we did that, that interview before Ondi's book came out. She sold something like 25,000 copies, if I'm not exaggerating, and has got a three-book deal now uh, with workbooks and all kinds of stuff coming out. So... I'm I'm just so glad, and and Andy and I keep in, in regular contact. So she's if somehow you're not familiar with her yet, then go and go and digest her work because it's life changing. Thank you, Andy. So I kept going. The podcast rolled into 2019 and eventually into 2020, of course. And uh, who else? I want to mention a couple of other you know special high points here. Uh, Gary Thomas, he's been you know writing books for years, and and he had this new book out called When to Walk Away: Finding Freedom from Toxic People. And I, when I got sent a copy of it, was skeptical because I was big into like, and I am big into the self-sacrificing love of God, and that and that we're invited to live that way. But Gary said to me, Jonathan, if the enemy can get us to pour out our love on people who have determined that they are going to reject it. If we can end up wasting our time and energy on people who are committed to not uh, not listening to us, that's going to ha- that's going to happen and we're going to waste our energy and the people and I know waste sounds kind of offensive, but but what it means is that the people who would have an ear and the people who could and are willing to listen to what we have to say aren't going to hear it. Because we're not speaking to them. We're busy uh, banging our head against a wall over here with somebody who's chosen to be stubborn. And we need to not do that anymore. There's there's no time for that. And that was a difficult message for me to swallow, but it has been very, very helpful in my life. So if you want to listen to that, that's episode 54, Walking Away from Toxic People with Gary Thomas. Very shortly after that, I had Gina Thomas, no relation, on the show. And we talked about being separated by the border. Now, Gina was in the remarkable position of having a very unique first-hand exposure to the situation of kids being separated from their parents, kids in cages, and all this stuff happening on the southern U.S. border. Specifically, Gina became the foster mother to a child who had been separated from her caregivers, and Gina spent a couple of years working to reunify this this girl with her family back home in uh, in Honduras, I believe. And so if you've heard things like, uh, well, it's good that they're being separated because there's all kinds of uh, child trafficking. Not all of that is true. That's a really, really rosy picture. There, there are some horrific things that have happened and are still happening. And it is not 
limited by the Trump administration, and it wasn't instituted by the Trump administration. I believe it was made worse. But this has been an ongoing thing and remains ongoing today. And so if you have a heart to care about that and want to actually really understand what's happening and what's not happening, then you need to get Gina's book, Separated by the Border, and you can go and listen to our interview. It's the podcast, episode 57, Separated by the Border with Gina Thomas. And the episode immediately after that was another really special one for me where I interviewed Griselle Medina, and we talked basically about whiteness and decentering whiteness. And she's this Latina pastor and church planter. And we had this really beautiful, sacred conversation where she opened up to me and was really able to help me see what I've struggled to see about what it's like to be a woman of color in the church. And uh, and I was humbled and I, I, was, I learned things. She taught me. And again, we became close friends. And so that's a, another really special interview. Her life story is quite remarkable, and she's doing wonderful things. So that's episode 58, Griselle Medina, Decentering Whiteness. And then a handful of weeks after that, I had Stephanie Tate on the show. And this is uh, the next highlights I'm going to play for you is my interview with Stephanie, where we talk about wholeness and suffering. Stephanie wrote a book, The View from Rock Bottom, all about... Uh, finding God at the absolute end and bottom of our life. And, ah, uh, man, I'm not going to say anything else because you just need to listen. This isn't like something that I figured out and I wrote about it and I put it out there and then I moved on with my life and it doesn't apply to me anymore. It's very much a, a present tense process for me. I still have a very complicated relationship with faith healings. Um, I wrote in the final chapter of the book uh, a story of me wrestling with God very tangibly over a service that was asking me to open myself up to the possibility of faith healing and not wanting to be open to that, wanting the comfortable cynicism of knowing, well, that's just not how it works. And I've moved beyond that. And aren't I so spiritually mature? Because I know that he doesn't heal me and my story. And I've come to terms with that. And that's great. And having to dig down deep in my motives and discover that, you know, not speaking for anybody else here, but entirely for my story, that in my case, it wasn't at all an issue of maturity or acceptance. It was full-blown cynicism. It was that same desire for control that leads people to prosperity thinking of knowing if I do X, then I know what the outcome's going to be. For me, it was just doing it in reverse, that it was easier to know. I don't pray for healing. I don't do those sorts of things anymore. Heck, I don't, at one point, I don't pray for anything in specifics anymore. I just say, your will be done. And that's so mature and wonderful and in reality, it was me knowing then I don't have to deal with the mystery over and over again. I don't have to deal with the possibility that I might not get healed and have to wrestle through all the implications of that. It's easier to just shelve it entirely and not let that be part of my life. And so now I walk in a much more confusing place, uh, which is interesting because so much of my faith upbringing was bathed in these ideas of certainty, of black and white, of, you know, absolute truth means 
that you know that this is true and that's it and it's certain and questions are wrong. They're they're the devil. Don't don't give in to doubt. Don't give in to ideas of tolerance or considering other points of view. Just stand firm and be so sure and certain of everything we've told you because you know it's right and that's the end of it. So the idea of moving forward in my faith journey, not backwards at all, meaning coming into this place that's more confusing and has more questions and more mystery and less certainty. That's very new for me. Mm. Uh, but I, I struggle constantly with the balance between those two sides that, yes, I do believe that God is big enough, that healing is possible, and that I'm not discounting stories of people who say that that's been their experience. On the flip side, I have to figure out how to hold that with a very open hand and the knowledge that there is no magic formula for for getting that. There is no way to earn faith healing by, by going through enough of the right steps in a certain order or having enough faith or being obedient enough or none of it. And, and that bigger than that, that there is no failure or shame in being a disabled person who exists mm. in a disabled body and who is not healed. Mm. That, that asking for healing is not asking for wholeness, that it's mm. not asking to be made complete. It's not asking to be restored or to find a way to be usable in the kingdom of God or, or, you know, Right. For to find value, that asking for healing can be compartmentalized for purely what it is. That it's simply that it's not fun living life in pain. And that there are things about my life that are far more challenging and difficult because of disability. Sure. And that much like Christ in the garden and the story that I connected to so deeply of him saying, I don't want to do this. If there's another way, could we do it that other way? Can we brainstorm on this one? Because really, is this the only way we can accomplish this? I I relate with that. Mm-hmm. That for me is so much the attitude that I approach faith healing now of, wow. I don't really love this. I'm not thrilled about it, God. And I know you can handle hearing that. I understand now there's nothing sacrilegious or loss of faith or lack of obedience in me saying, I'm not super thrilled about your what appears to be your plan. Could we could we not do this? Yeah. And yet having to hold that in that loose hand enough of finishing that thought with Christ's thought of, but in the end, you know, not my will but yours be done. It's okay. If you say no, but that doesn't mean I have to pretend that I'm cool with it or that that was yeah. my preferred outcome. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. kind of where I, I stand right now. And I, I hate that that answer is so all over the place and so confusing, but that's the reality of the space that I'm living in. You know, like I don't have a neat bow to wrap up on that for people anymore. I cannot give you a TED Talk version of the proper place of faith healing in modern faith. You know, I I don't know. I'm still wrestling that out on a day-to-day basis. I really don't have clarity on that issue, but I also think that that's a much healthier place than when I did. Mm. Okay, I've just had like a major <laughs> aha while 
as you're explaining all that to me, I'm trying to figure out how to vocalize what's going on in my head and my heart. Okay, something what you what you said there about Okay, bear with me. Christ mm-hmm. in the garden. If we can see him as whole, like fully God mm-hmm. and fully man, and also fully saying time out, not my first choice. Can we find another way forward? Can we just apply the same picture to anybody and everybody in our community, regardless of what I would see as their health status and say, okay, you're whole. Yes. You are fully human. This is Mm -hmm. the full beauty of who you are. You're allowed to say, can we find another way that this pain isn't a part of my life, that uh, I don't have to do anything with whatever the particular difficulties that somebody faces. I don't I don't think I really understood the ableism of my own language until mm. about 45 seconds ago. I think there is something profound in coming to this conversation, not necessarily from the perspective of the person who's going up to the front asking for healing or who's being the object uh, you know, of the the people coming over them and can I pray for you and can I lay hands on you? But being in the perspective of the person who's doing the prayer, um, I love hearing you make those connections because uh, as I'm sorting out how to how to grapple with the role of faith healing, the reality is as a disabled person, um, I have less power. And, and, and less privilege in that situation than the, than the abled person who feels like, I'm going to go heal someone. Isn't this great? <laughs> like, I'm going to do this big, powerful, supernatural thing for you. And you're going to be so excited to receive it. And it's very frustrating for people that come from, and I'll name names, that come from contexts like Bethel's, right? Who go to places like their supernatural school of ministry and who think it's totally appropriate to go up to a random stranger on public transportation and be like, I'm going to heal you from your wheelchair today. And as a disabled person, it's a little easier for me to look at that and go, there are about 25 consent issues that I could list off right off the top of my head with that scenario. But the question people leave me with that I always struggle with is how, how is, how should they approach them then? Like, should, are are, there, are you saying that they need to just give up on faith healings and never offer that again? Or, you know, how is it appropriate? And I think you've hit the nail on the head in your questions and your, your line of thinking here of, it's not so much, should we stop offering faith healing? But the question is, what is your motive And where is your thought process at when you approach someone to make that offer? When you have that altar call and you say, I'm going to be the one who puts their hand on you and does this huge supernatural thing. My number one question for you is take a minute and think really hard about all of the people in that disabled person's life, that disabled person included, who have probably pleaded. I mean, think about my mom, right? And how many hours she has probably spent on her knees begging God to not make me live in this pain, Mm. right? Right. So why is it, person who's putting their hand on me in front of this whole audience, 
Why is it that you think your calling is to be the one to suddenly, you know, be a part of this enormous miracle, if you will? And more than that, ask yourself, if you were to just sit silently (laughs) in your pew and let me sit in mine and you really felt called that somehow you were having a supernatural experience where you felt like the spirit was clearly telling you, I want this woman to be healed. What is to stop you from sitting exactly where you are in your pew, not saying a word to me personally, and just praying to be a part of that healing moment for me without without (laughs) being visibly in front of everybody, right? And most people don't like that. They're very, well, well, that's not the same. That's not, okay, then this has a lot more to do with your motives then than my healing. Stephanie, the Holy Spirit says that to me every time. I'm like in a prayer group. Okay. Yeah. Like, okay, let's just move, move healing aside. We're just getting ready for our, for our meeting. And we've just gathered for a few minutes before everyone comes in. Okay. Okay. And we're just praying. We're just having a little, just a little time. And, and I'm like, I'm waiting for my turn to pray. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) And I've got it all lined up and rehearsed in my head. And I'm like, I can't wait till this person's done praying so I can pray. And then, and then Holy Spirit's like ta- tapping and that's my, my internal voice is hyper-masculine and, uh, <laughs> and Holy Spirit's tapping on my heart and is like, Hey son, so you, like, do you just want to pray now? Like you want to just pray? Like I'm listening. Hmm. Like, I mean, if you, if you want to pray with your fancy voice, you can, like, that's fine. But like, <laughs> you don't have to wait. And I'm like. Uh, and I've never heard anyone vocalize that outside of my own private thoughts. And I don't want to sound like I'm discounting that there is ever a time that you really are in a connected relationship with a person who is sick or who is disabled, that you really do feel spirits leading and that, that that can be a beautiful thing. I'm not trying to discount a role for any sort of altar call or faith healing as they exist. I merely think, again, that we don't exist in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. That we have to have these conversations with acknowledgement that as much as we are individuals, we exist in a communal and there are systems and structures that all of this is taking place in. And the reality is an abled person will always hold power and privilege in a situation that a disabled person does not. Whether we're talking about faith healing, whether we're talking about accessibility, it doesn't matter. Abled people hold more power and privilege in that situation. And as a result, it always needs to be approached from that perspective of, A, have I considered the wants and desires and feelings and consent of Mm. this disabled person? Or have they become sort of an object in this story where I'm always the subject, where I'm the main character in this event and they are there as the recipient Mm. of this supernatural experience. Because if we're always the object of the story and not the subject, that is a dead giveaway that this is not a theology that actually empowers or heals or connects me as a disabled person. It's one that isolates and excludes and dehumanizes me. And that's, that's not of God. I can say that very clearly with, with no uncertainty or mystery about it. That's not of God. I know 
that I serve a savior who, you know, I, I wrote a devotional about this once that you see Christ come back after his resurrection, right? And he appears to his disciples. And we often hear that story as like, he's this guy with these little skin marks, if you will, like slight discolored dots on his hands to sort of show there had once been nails there. But otherwise, he's perfectly healed and whole in the way we like to think of it from an abled perspective. Mm. And yet, when you actually read the story, he's saying things like, please stick your fingers inside my gaping flesh wound, right? Like gouge your hand into my entire side, Thomas, because it's wide open and you're able to do that. That is not a body that came back healed. Yes. That is a body that went into the ground and came back out having defeated death and yet still bearing the very real wounds of the experience that he had just gone through. And as a disabled person, that was such a powerful story for me to recognize that in his glory, he was still wounded. So you cannot tell me that there is still not wholeness in my body as it exists right now. But more than that, that I am not a complete and total reflection of the glory of God now. Not someday when I get healed. Not don't worry in heaven. You won't need a cane anymore. Right now. Because I serve a Savior that came back wounded and that means something to me. Hmm. Stephanie, I don't know if this is going to feel appropriate, uh, so please just holler at me. But okay. I, I feel like I need to repent. Um, hmm. I, I, th I think on the on the spectrum, I wouldn't be real far away, and certainly have seen the beauty in, let's say, every, everyone for lack of whatever. But the specific use, your usage of the word wholeness, I have not seen disabled people as whole. Hmm. And, and, I'm, and I'm feeling powerfully grieved. Um, and, I, and I would like to, I would like to apologize and, and, uh, and to say I'm seeing the, the wrongness of that. Um, I'm really sorry. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I'm <clears throat> a little bit of a mess over here now. Whew. Um, I think that's, um, first of all, thank you for saying that, but, um, I think that's a powerful model for a lot of your listeners, and I'll just go ahead and name names and say a lot of your white male abled listeners, especially of what it looks like to not to, to receptively listen and respond, right? To model from a place of, we talk a big game a lot in deconstruction communities about lament, but I don't see a lot of folks who are willing to model that real leadership, real lament comes from a place of repentance first, right? That there can't be a true mourning of the wrong that's been done if nobody considers themselves complicit in it. Mm -hmm. If it's just this miraculous they that exists out there somehow independent of any of us individuals. And 
that's the hardest part, I think, of the deconstruction journey. And I want to be very clear that as a white woman, I may be disabled, and that absolutely makes me a marginalized person. I don't want to discount that. However, I am still white. (laughs) So I have my own issues of complicity that I have to continually examine and identify and repent of that it is so easy sometimes as we step out of some of these toxic evangelical systems we grew up in. It's so easy to point back and talk about they did this toxic thing. They promote that toxic theology. They, 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 without any acknowledgement of the role that we played in not just receiving it, but furthering some of these toxic systems. And more than that, I say this as a white woman benefiting from those toxic systems of marginalization, benefiting from the marginalization of other people. And so when I see somebody like you who's willing to take a moment to not just say, wow, that was powerful, thanks for sharing, but say, wait a minute, I want to take a moment to acknowledge I was a part of that or I am a part of that and I have something I need to personally repent of rather than just collectively lament I think there's so much wisdom in that, and it's a model that so many of us need to see in progressive spaces, because I'm grateful to see so many more progressive Christian spaces springing up that are willing to to do this hard deconstruction work, that are willing to say, well, there were a lot of toxic things we don't want to perpetuate, and yet we're also not willing to go to the other extreme and throw the baby out with the bathwater and be done with our spirituality. So how do we do this hard, messy work of peeling away those layers with painful scalpel-like precision? And yet in those same spaces, this is the component that is so often lacking. People that are willing to step out of that dichotomy of the they systems and say, no, I was a part of that. And I still carry some of that. And I bear some of the complicity for that. And you deserve an apology for it. So I'm, I'm moved and I'm really touched and I'm grateful that you modeled what it looks like to respond with that personal acknowledgement instead of that easy, distant, they sort of lament. Stephanie's wisdom on suffering as we leaned into COVID, man, I, I, I didn't, I don't know how I would have gotten through this without the understanding that she really helped me get in my heart regarding God being with us in suffering, and and of suffering and hardship not diminishing us, and I, and just to put some of this COVID n- numbers that can easily become meaningless into concrete terms. Stephanie has an autoimmune issue. Stephanie's husband has, I think, either an autoimmune issue or a lung issue, I forget. And one of her kids, basically three members of her family, really high risk of dying if they catch COVID. And so Stephanie and her family have been in isolation, locked down at home for over 300 days. I was messaging with Stephanie today as I was listening back over this and just, ugh, just like thanking her for her time. And she said to me, Jonathan, I I feel like I'm hidden at home 
and the entire world has moved on without me. And, and I just, my heart broke because of how important and real she is and how COVID has taken so much from people like her. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've been losing my mind just week by week or month by month when we are in tougher lockdowns and I can't visit with people. Stephanie's been, been locked down for almost a year, 12 months, 300 plus days, barely out of the house. And so would you pray for her, Stephanie Tate and her family? And, and more than that, would you make sure that you are putting these practices of seeing others and of owning our complicitness, would you put those into practice in your own life? Because uh, when we don't, and when we think COVID's a hoax, or when we don't make changes in our own life for the sake of others, people die. It's as simple as that. After Stephanie, of course, we, we kept going. Shortly after that, I, I had Jerome Libba on the show, Dr. Jerome. He'll be on the panel next week. We talked about the psychology of Jesus, and, and that was a just mind-altering thing for me. And, and just so encouraging to meet Jerome, who's also an Enneagram 2 like me. He's got a big heart. He's a gentle uh, guy. And, and it was so affirming to meet another guy that felt like a kindred spirit. Um, Another, another really important one came shortly after that, Charismatics in COVID-19 with Lucy Pepiat. Lucy is this remarkable theologian, a charismatic teacher, a principal of a theology school, and she is very willing to take to task us charismatics about uh, areas of blindness in our theology, especially as it comes to suffering. So we talked all about what we're doing well and not uh, in COVID, and, and she her... She has been proven right a hundred times over by this, this pandemic and how the church has and hasn't responded well. And then another really sacred and important interview was with Kayla Steckline. Kayla, the widow of Andrew Steckline, the pastor who died by suicide a couple of years ago. She came on the show and shared really vulnerably how to understand suicide. And, and I think I've been, again, trying to get there and making strides, but it was the first time that I really began to understand properly that, that someone who kills themselves cannot do so rationally. It is not a rational decision. And thus, it can't be a selfish decision. And it can't really even be something that you commit to doing. And so the, the language of committed suicide is, is wrong. And it also sounds like a crime. And so understanding that, that someone who takes their own life is, is, is at such a place of illness and despair that their, their whole mind is on fire and they are in deep, blind agony. And so it was very helpful for me. So if, if suicide is still something you're trying to understand, especially maybe in, in pastors and leaders, then then go and, and have a listen to our interview. It's the podcast episode 85, Destigmatizing Suicide with Kayla Steckline. All right. This has been wild. Uh, just, just a wild ride for me looking back over the last three years, 99 episodes. I can't wait for you guys to listen to episode 100 and 101 next week and the week after. I just want to say thank you. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for everyone who, who supports me on Patreon. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for buying my book. My wife and I, Maya, sat down recently and said, okay, it's been three years. We said we'd give it three years. Is this thing working? Yeah, it's working. We're still not making ends meet financially, but God is faithful and God provides. And uh, But, you know, the, the writing is working, the podcast is growing, and, and, and all the numbers, the metrics that I would look at for success in terms of Am I doing what I'm meant to be doing? They're all going in the right direction, and I feel very settled in this work. So thank you. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this with friends. Thank you for helping make my dream of becoming a writer and of being a professional encourager a reality. And if you do want to to give back or say thanks in another way, I've I've just figured out a way that I can start offering transcribed audio of every episode. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I have listeners that are visually impaired, and I have listeners that are hearing impaired and, and have said, listen, I, I I like what you're doing, but I, I can't really engage with your content if you don't provide a transcription. And uh, I haven't been able to do so financially and time, but I've figured out a way that I can do it within reach. And if I can get to 70 patrons. I think I'm around 55 today. So I only need 15 more people to give a minimum of $3 a month. Uh, And you can also give annually. There's a bunch of different options. If you'd like to go to jonathanpuddle.com slash Patreon, or or if if you use Patreon and you want to go over there, you're on Patreon already, just go patreon.com slash jonathanpuddle. It'll take you to the same place. And uh, chip in, help me reach this goal of 70, uh, 70 supporters, and then I'll be able to start offering transcriptions of every episode. And I'm, I'd really love to be able to do that, but I need your help. So thank you again. I hope this has been life-giving for you. Go back and listen to some of those fun episodes. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for being here. That's all from Jonathan Puddle this week. Next week, episode 100, Jesus Plus Trauma with Paul Young, Dr. Jerome Libba, Dr. Allison Cook, and Amita Mansare Richardson. Don't miss it.